Well, good morning once again, Bell Shoals family. My name is Corey Abney and I serve as the lead pastor. I wanna welcome those of you who are in the room with us here at our Brandon campus, especially those of you who are with us for the first time today. And as always, we wanna welcome our online audience from all across the country. It is so good to have you with us today as we continue in our series called Beginnings where we are looking at the foundation of the Christian worldview by going all the way back to the very beginning and looking at how the world began, how we began, and looking at foundationally how everything that exists came to be, and then the purpose that everything possesses given the fact that it was provided by the hand of a loving, all-powerful creator God. We started with some pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> These past couple weeks have found us swimming in the deep end of the pool. We, we had the very first week a conversation about the first days, the, the, the first days of creation. Last week we talked about the first people. And uh, those are pretty weighty topics, thinking about the fact that the world is not here accidentally or coincidentally, that the world is here as a result of God's creative power and purpose. That's why we have order and complexity in the world today. The, the, the fact that men and women are here as a result of God's creative activity, the fact that we're unique and that we're created in the image of God. These are heavy, weighty matters. And so I'm, I'm pleased to tell you that today we're not going to be talking about anything that heavy. We kind of catch our breath here today and just kind of chill, have a much lighter topic as we talk about the first marriage. <laughs> and... Um, we think about marriage and uh, man, that's pretty light topic. Shouldn't be much heavy waiting required of us today <laughs> as we think about God's design for the man and the woman that he made in his image. Now we understand that marriage can be difficult. Uh, someone said years ago, uh, my husband and I both said, I do, and we haven't agreed on a single thing since. <laughs> Maybe that's your story. Someone said marriage is a relationship in which one person is always right and the other person is the husband. <laughs> Maybe you feel that at times, I don't know, but certainly marriage can be difficult. You hear in our society how hard marriage is or can be, that it ages you, that it's stressful, that it's taxing. We're prone to hear about all of these many difficulties. But I, I just want you to know today, because we begin, that my wife and I have been married almost 25 years. And uh, our experience has been that marriage is not that difficult at all. It, it doesn't age you. Like if you're doing it the right way, it's really not that hard. If you just do it according to God's design, it's not that bad. Let me give you an example. I look like I brought a picture of my wife and I here shortly after we were married. You can see how happy we were. And it's just, it's great. To get, be married is great. And then, I mean, just to prove to you it's not that hard, let me just show you a picture of us at our 20-year anniversary. And uh, <laughs> see, you can barely, barely see the difference there. See how happy we are. Marriage is, um, it's not very difficult, right? I mean, it's pretty easy. It's, uh, I don't know. You know, it's presented as more difficult than it. No, it, it, can be, it can be tough. Two people coming together 
lives intertwining, living together, supposedly forever, at least until the Lord's return, right? Or until death do us part or one murders the other. You know, something like that, I think is how it goes. We understand that um, this is a significant undertaking, but it's an undertaking that is under attack in our society like certainly never before, right? From multiple angles. Yeah, I get it. Marriage can be difficult. And um, for those of us who are married or you've been married, you understand there are definitely unique challenges. And, and um, you know, we'll talk about this next week, but with the, with the fact that you've got two imperfect people coming together, there are gonna be days the coming together doesn't fit together all that well. But the question is, is it worth it? The question is, does God have a purpose in it? Because there are multiple angles of attack in our society. Listen, there are angles of attack, kind of going back to what we talked about last week, that says anybody can get married. Doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your identity. Marriage has been reduced to basically a glorified cohabitation with anyone that wants to quote unquote marry. Some have taken the angle of attack that marriage just isn't worth it, that, that the blessings and the benefits of it are not worth all the headache and the hassle. And so there's just multiple layers of attack when we think about marriage today. And that's why, as we've done with this series the first couple of weeks, I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to look at what is God's design. What was God's perfect design given to man and woman in the context of the garden in which he placed them? And then deduce some things from that that would be helpful and instructive for us today. Because as we've talked about throughout this series, God's design is always best. And whenever we deviate from God's design, we just invite hurt and sorrow into our lives. And so when it comes to the issue of marriage, the opening chapters of Genesis help us to see that marriage is like, a foundational gift that God gave to man and woman. This is front and center here as a part of the creative design of God. And here's what we're gonna see today. Let me kind of just give you this truth and then I wanna show it to you from Genesis 2 about what marriage is. Very simply put, marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. Say, what is marriage? Well, marriage is not a contractual agreement. Marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. And we see this in Genesis 2. If you have a copy of God's word with you, I invite you to, to turn there with me. We'll look at the latter part of Genesis 2 as we, as we think about this most critical issue of marriage today. This one flesh covenantal union between one man and one woman for life. Now, the early part of Genesis 2 is a, essentially a recap of God's creative activity. We have a summary of all that God did in the first six days of creation. We see in the very first part of chapter 2 a description of God's resting activity, that on the seventh day he rested, he established for us the need for a day of rest. And then as you get into the uh, next verses there in chapter 2, moving up to verse 18, you find just a recap of what God has done in terms of, of, of creating a garden in which he places uh, man. And we see how he's naming the animals that are brought to him. And then ultimately we're going to see that God brings one to him who is his equal. And so we'll pick it up in verse 18. Let's look at this together. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. The first time that we see in our study of the beginnings, God saying something is not good. 
Remember, after the first six days of creation, everything was good. But here God is saying now that man is in the garden by himself, that it's not good for him to be alone. And so the Lord says, I will make a helper who is just right for him. And so the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. And he gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But there was still no helper just right for him. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out of one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening and the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And then you have this seemingly strange description of what happened after all that transpired that the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. The first marriage, a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. Now there are a couple things I wanna highlight to you about what we've just read and about this description of the first marriage that I think is critically important for our worldview moving forward. And if you're taking notes, just jot these down. First of all, I want you to see that marriage, just like everything else that God gave to mankind is good. (laughs) That's a really important statement. Marriage is good. Now, let me also clarify here that marriage is not essential. In fact, as we look through the pages of Scripture, what we discover is that there are people who are single and called to singleness, and they live their lives without marriage, and those people are fulfilled, they're joyful, they make a difference, and therefore, I'm not saying when I tell you that marriage is good, that marriage is essential, for every person. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who was single throughout his years of ministry, actually says to the Corinthian church, I wish you were as I am. He talks about the fact that if you're unmarried, you're single for whatever reason, that you have opportunities in serving the Lord and impacting your culture that married people do not have. So I'm not saying that marriage is essential. I don't want anyone who's here who is single, maybe you just haven't married yet, Maybe you've been divorced, maybe you're a widow or a widower, and maybe you're kind of feeling awkward in that for some reason or another. I just want you to understand there are no second-class citizens among the children of God, right? There aren't are zero. So I'm not saying that marriage is essential, but when it comes to those who are married or who will marry, when it comes to this, this generation that we're raising that's kind of under attack when it comes to the issue of marriage. Like as they think about it, I just wanna say that when we come to the issue of marriage itself, it's good. It's good to marry. You see, God's design for man and woman is that they come together in a one flesh union. At least that's his design for for most, his design for man and woman in terms of human flourishing, but particularly for, for people, most people will be called or led to marry and that's good. And, and let me just kind of just present some evidence as to some of the attacks that are being leveled against 
marriage today. Mandy Catrone wrote an article just a couple years ago in The Atlantic entitled, What You Lose When You Gain a Spouse. The article states that marriage is not the social good that so many believe and want it to be. That sentiment is shared by many in our society. Pew Research Center just a few years ago reported that approximately 50% of Americans over the age of 18 are married. It's right around 50%. Now, listen, that's down from 72% in 1960. So in the past 60 years, the percentage of Americans over the age, teen, over the age of 18 who are married has dropped 22%. Now, of course, we know that people are getting married later. They're delaying marriage, perhaps because of this crisis in our culture, which devalues marriage. In the United States right now, the median age for a first marriage recently rose to an all-time high, the age of 30 for men and 28 for women. The Pew Research Center also asked, a number of Americans to comment on two statements. First statement, society is better off if people make marriage and having children a priority or society is just as well off if people have priorities other than marriage and children. Here's where we are today. 46% of adults chose the first statement, 50% chose the second. Here's what I'm saying. Over 50% of our society view marriage and parenting as hindrances to their happiness. Cohabitation has become more prevalent. Multiple partners become more prevalent. The radical redefinition of marriage as a union between a man and a woman has been under siege. And so there are many in our society more than ever before that do not see God's Beautiful design for one woman and one man to come together in a one flesh covenantal union for life. But I want you to understand as we think about this issue day of marriage and family, God's design is for our good. It's not that every single person has to be married, but it, it is to suggest that the natural outworking of a relationship between one man and one woman is marriage. Proverbs 18.22 says this, the man who finds a wife finds a treasure and he receives favor from the Lord. That truth prompted Winston Churchill to famously say, my most brilliant achievement was my ability to persuade my wife to marry me. <laughs> Gentlemen, Valentine's Day is right around the corner. Feel free to use that quote. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 4 says this, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. And one can throw off the cover saying, you're making me too warm. <laughs> and the other can say, I'm not warm enough, right? But I digress. But how can one be warm alone? Hebrews 13.4 says this, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. See, here's what the scripture teaches. And here's what we see in Genesis 2, that the man who finds a wife finds a treasure, 
That we're to give honor to marriage and understand that marriage and family are a part of God's beautiful design for human flourishing and for the societies in which we live. Now, let me just press a little bit deeper into this first takeaway and, and just maybe give you a couple reasons why I think marriage is good. Like, why did God design us for marriage and design us for this covenantal union? Well, well, first of all, listen, the deepest companionship you will ever experience in life is the companionship that you will find in the context of covenant. The deepest companionship and the deepest fulfillment you'll find in human relationship is found in the context of covenant. And the deeper the commitment, the deeper the joy and the deeper the fulfillment. See, there are many people today who engage in human relationship with another person in terms of a dating or a cohabitation relationship with a get out of jail free card in their back pocket. There's not the covenantal union. There's not the covenantal commitment. There's, there, there's not the biblical model here of God's design saying, I am with you to the end in sickness and in health, right? No matter what, my love for you is going to emulate the love that God has for us, which is unconditional. And I'm going to love you fully. I'm going to love you faithfully. I'm going to love you fiercely no matter what. And, and, and there's, there's no get out of jail free card. There could be a get into jail murder card, okay, <laughs> right. But <laughs> there's no get out of jail free card, like if you're doing it right, okay. And so it's like, hey, I'm in it. And, and in that context, what you discover is a deep commitment that results in deep fulfillment. And here's the thing, there are many people today who want the joyful byproducts of a covenantal union without the commitment. And in the words of some wise person years ago, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Unless you're a Baptist and you come to an after church fellowship, we know how to have our cake and eat it too. <laughs> Listen, but when it comes to human flourishing, when it comes to this foundational relationship, really the fabric of our society, right, of family, marriage, here's the thing, you, you, you can't have the byproduct of covenant without the commitment. But when you lean into that companionship that's found in the context of covenant, yes, of course, there will be challenges, but there will also be tremendous blessing. And I'm concerned for a generation of men and women who are approaching this view of marriage from a perspective of what it will rob them of as opposed to what it will bless them with. Because they're being fed articles like this one I cited in the Atlantic, which says, well, when you, when you add a spouse, you lose a lot. Well, I beg to differ. You see, friendship and fulfillment is best discovered and enjoyed in the context of covenant. Secondly, let me give you another reason marriage is good. It's because children need a father and a mother. They need both. And God's design for the family is that one man and one woman come together in a covenantal union where they are blessed with a friendship at a deep level. They flourish together. As the scripture says, he who finds a wife finds a treasure, right? We're to honor marriage. And so here's, here's, here's what happens, right? There's, there, there, there's a foundational friendship that forms, 
That's why I wanna challenge those of you who are single, who are pursuing marriage, to first find a friend, not a romantic partner. Find a friend. What was not good about Adam's situation is that he had all these animals, right, and all these birds, and he had this beautiful garden, but he had no one to share it with. He didn't have a, 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 a created being who was his equal. And when he woke up and he was given his wife, right, an equal, one who was also an image bearer, he says, this is awesome, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I now have one who is equal, a companion, and they could do life together. So listen to me, for those of you searching for your spouse, like, like first find a friend and someone you can share life together with. Don't buy into our culture that tells you everything's about sex and romance. You will figure the sex and romance out. Find a friend. And in the context of covenant, that friendship and that that depth that you will discover will lean in, that it'll, it'll provide a joy and a fulfillment like really no other relationship can have. And in that context, and notice what God says in Genesis 2, and, and even talked about this, back, we looked at this last week in Genesis 1, then you'll be fruitful and multiply, and thus you have a leaving from father and mother. The two come together in a one flesh union, and from that union, there is procreation. But the most important relationship in the home, parents, is a relationship between mom and dad. That's why God did not take Adam's rib and come back with a child. Because children need a mother and a father. Their security is deeply connected to what happens with mom and dad. Their identity deeply entwined with what happens with mom and dad. And what you see here in the opening pages of human history is God creating man and woman uniquely, differently, specially in his image. God making them male and female. God bringing them together where they leave father and mother and they form their own family unit and they form a covenantal union, one man, one woman for life. And that union ultimately leads to a fruitfulness but we know it's children and those children are raised in a context where they have a mother and a father and that is very good and necessary. And here's what's happening in our society. We have a whole generation of children that don't know the joy and the blessing of being raised by a mom and a dad. I, I don't mean to be too controversial today. Well, actually I do, so let me just go ahead and say it. Two moms and, or two dads can't make babies. Again, if you have biological questions about this, jason.millsaps <laughs> at bellshoals.com. Okay? I'm no biology teacher. But two moms or two dads don't make babies. And they don't constitute families. Because God's design for marriage, God's design for human flourishing is one man and one woman in a covenantal union 
for life, cultivating a friendship and a relationship that's deep, that's fulfilling, that reflects God's covenant of love for us, and then children being born in that environment so that these children have an identity and a security connected to a mother and a father, which both bring something of equal value to the table. And in that context, therefore, children have all that they need to flourish. This is God's design. And that's why Tim Keller in his great book on marriage said this. All surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriages is high, about 61 to 62%. Now our society is not gonna report on this, but listen to what Keller reports. There has been little decrease in this figure during the last decade. Most striking of all, longitudinal, okay, long-term Studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy in marriages will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. This led University of Chicago sociologist Linda White to say, the benefits of divorce have been oversold. During the last two decades, the great preponderance of research evidence shows that people who are married consistently show much higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives than those who are single, divorced, or living with a partner. It also reveals that most people who are happy in, are happy in their marriages and most of those who are not and who don't get divorced eventually become happy. Also, listen to this. Children who grow up in married two-parent families have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. The overwhelming verdict then is that being married and growing up with parents who are married are enormous boosts to our well-being. You don't say. This is God's design. Marriage is a covenantal union between one man and one woman for life. And let me say it one more time. Marriage, like everything else that God gave to mankind, is good. All right, secondly, fasten your seatbelt here. It's about to get dicey. Number two, taking notes. The only place you can have sex without shame is in the context of the marriage covenant. I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm gonna keep this PG, all right? But our society's a little enamored with sex. <laughs> our world is really. And remember that all sin, we'll talk about this next week, but all sin is really distortion. It's taking something that God has given us, which is good and distorting it so that we abuse it and misuse it to our own detriment. The devil never uses his own raw materials. He can only take what God has given and distort it. Now that's true with sex. And our society is greatly distorting the gift of sex. There, there's this notion that somehow, you know, if you're a Christ follower and you, you follow God's design and you, you have a marriage covenant that you're a part of for the, for the long haul, right? Like you live your life in a way that's consistent with God's design that somehow you will be less fulfilled, you have less joy, less happiness and all the rest and you will not have good sex. Well, I'm here to tell you, I think Christians have the best sex. <laughs> All right, now I'm not doing any surveys, all right? And I don't need anybody commenting on that after service, okay? But here's what we know to be true. You cannot have sex without shame. Anywhere else except in the context of covenant. Now you say, why are you mentioning that? Because the very last 
awkward verse of chapter 2 is that you have this man and you have this woman who God has brought together in covenant union running around the garden naked and no shame. No reason to be embarrassed. No reason to be humiliated. No reason for insecurity. And what we discover here is that God has made us to have a one flesh union in the context of covenant that is fulfilling for the husband and the wife and that results in human flourishing through the gift of children. And Jesus speaks to this. He speaks to the, just to the beauty of this one flesh union. Let me show you Matthew 19. Jesus says, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female, he said. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. You see, God is not anti-sex. God is not anti-fulfillment. Listen, God has given us actually the most powerful conduit for joyful fulfillment, and it's only found in the context of covenant. And if you try to distort God's gift of intimacy outside the bonds of covenant, what you discover is that this distortion will rob you of joy and happiness. It will result in harm to you and potentially others. Because whenever you deviate from God's design, it leads to dysfunction. And so Jesus talks about this one flesh union, that we should not split that up. We should not take that lightly. And let me take you back to Solomon, right? The wisest man to ever live to provide further emphasis that God is not anti-sex or anti-intimacy or anti-joy or anti-fulfillment in the context of covenant, right? He says this, drink water from your own well. He's not talking about water. And share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves, husband and wife. Never share it with strangers. All right, <laughs> just... Roll with me on this. This is in the Bible. I debated this, but let me just... uh, Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving, dear, graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Get that off the screen. Okay. (laughs) Man. It's in the Bible, y'all. It's in the Bible. Jason.Millsaps at bellshoals.com. Now, there are actually a lot of other scriptures I could bring to the table here, okay? But (laughs) I'm not that crazy. All right, so I just want you to understand that this narrative in our society that, well, if you get married, it'll weigh you down. If you get married, it'll rob you of what's uh, what's best. Or if you get married, you know, you'll, you'll limit yourself in terms of who you can be with and all this. I'm just telling you. Whenever you deviate from God's design, it leads to dysfunction. And God has given the gift of marriage between one man and one woman for life so that they have a deep union and connection that's not only emotional, relational, but it's physical. And that's where you'll find the best sex, the greatest joy, the deepest companionship. And so here's, here's the thing. If we 
lean into where our society is taking us and we abuse intimacy outside of marriage, here, I'm just telling you, it's, it leads to the devastating consequences. Just look around. At some point in the future, I'm sure we'll talk about the suicide rates among those who delve into deep deviations from God's sexual design. If our society were honest, which it's not, what it would tell you is that all of this deviation isn't working. And the Apostle Paul talked about that 2,000 years ago. Because you know what, dear one? There's nothing new under the sun. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. Run from sexual sin. This is powerful. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, and so you must honor God with your body. Here's what Paul says. When you deviate from God's design with the gift of sex and intimacy, it's designed between one man and one woman in the context of covenantal union. Here's what happens. You bring devastating consequences upon yourself in ways that no other sin will bring into your life. And he says, hey, if you're a Christ follower today, by the way, you don't own a single thing in your life, including your body. It belongs to the Lord. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit resides. And therefore, we should glorify God with our bodies and lean into the beauty and the blessing of God's design, even when it doesn't make sense from a human perspective. And for those of you who are single, especially those of you ladies who are single and you're in a dating relationship and somebody pressures you to go into a certain room late at night, you just tell them, hey, listen, before we do that, I need to ask Jesus for his permission. Because my body belongs to him. I'd love for some of you to try that just to see what he says. <laughs> You see, we, we're just inundated right now with, I mean, an agenda, really, of sexual freedom, relational freedom, be who you want to be, do what you want to do, that's what's going to make you happy, and it's all a lie. What will bring the greatest and the deepest level of joy and fulfillment to those of you who were called to be in a long-term relationship, well, to be in a covenant union, not a casual relationship between one man and one woman for life. This marriage union is good. This marriage union is a safe, fulfilling place for sex. It's the only place you'll ever have sex without shame. And then lastly, just make a note of this. Here's the thing. This union, okay, will reflect the coming union between Christ and his church. And you'll discover in that union what it truly means to be loved by a God who loves unconditionally. Because you know, what, you know what the ultimate purpose for marriage is? To show us the deep, faithful, sacrificial, and covenantal love of our Savior. And let me just tell you something. 
Our Savior is coming back. And his coming is likened to, of all things, a wedding. And we're the bride. Let me show you Revelation 19. Scripture says, let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come. John looking into the future and he's seen the return of Christ. The time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. You want to know what the ultimate purpose for marriage is to help you better and more deeply understand the radical, covenantal, faithful, sacrificial love of God. The love of a bridegroom that loves his bride unconditionally, that's coming for his bride. And I'll tell you, I'm so privileged to do weddings from time to time. And the best part of every wedding I've ever done is getting to stand next to the groom and see the bride come through those double doors. And I always sneak a peek to see if the groom is crying. And I'm watching the, no, I'm not looking at the crowd. I'm watching the face of the bride and not the father who's weeping and gnashing his teeth. and all. No, 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 but the bride, right? I mean, oh my goodness, guys, I wish I could just give you like a snapshot of some of the things. I mean, just the preciousness of that, to have that perspective of here she comes. And every time with every wedding I've ever done, my thought is always the same. There's a greater wedding coming. And we're the bride preparing ourselves for this eternal union with our bridegroom. And he's coming. One day he'll be here and we'll be together forever. Face to face in eternal glory. Why? because he loves us that much. He's redeemed us by his own blood. He's conquered death and hell through his bodily resurrection. And he's given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee. Oh, he is coming for us, his bride. And for those of you who are led to marriage, those of you who are embracing marriage, hey, real talk, it can be difficult. It's one sinner joined in holy matrimony with another sinner for life. (laughs) But contrary to our society, can I just remind you today, it's worth it. For those of you who are called to it, for those of you in it today, it's worth it. Because in that covenantal union, yeah, you're gonna learn a lot about yourself and what it means to love. You're gonna learn a lot about yourself. You're gonna learn about God's design, but you're also gonna have a better understanding of what it means one day for a faithful covenantal love, the love of God to abide in you and to come and redeem you and to welcome you into eternal glory.